things going slow here. I mean the iPad. <laughs> I'm sure there are other things running slowly as well today. Uh, all right, Ed, I think I'm going to have to rely on you because this is not... Um, if, it, if it kicks in, I'll let you know, okay? Oh, I think it kicked in. Let, let me just test this. All right, okay, good. All right, you're off the hook. Well, church, we have, we have the, uh, the awesome privilege today of talking about more wrath from God, of talking about self-righteousness, talking about judgment. Hurrah, everybody. Are you ready for this? This is, this is like, uh, it's, it, it, we're, we're working through Romans, the book of Romans in the New Testament, and the first couple of chapters could feel like you're, you're you know, going to like a boxing match each week with the Lord, right? Did any of you feel last week? Just a little bit like, woo, I'm getting some knocks here. But were any, of you, were any of you encouraged by what you heard last week? Amen. So it's not, this, the, the, the great thing, here's, here's something to consider. The great thing about the bad news in the Bible is that we also know the good news. That's what the gospel means, the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ. And I will tell you, good news is always better when it follows bad news, isn't it? You know, it's, it's almost like um, uh, in, every, in every decent story, whether it's a movie, a TV show, a book, a fairy tale, whatever it is, just story hour, you know, with, with your relatives, every good story gets really bad before it gets good. And if it doesn't get really bad, you don't care, right? When you're little and you're learning to read, see spot, see spot run, see stop, spot, stop running. Like, okay, this is boring. Right? But if Spot got like, uh, gra- grabbed up by some alien predator and were, you know, see Spot fly away as alien predator tries to murder him, then you'd be like, oh, what's going to happen next? Right? This is the part of Scripture where we're reminded, what's going to happen next? Now, we know the answer. If you've been in the church at all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you know the answer. If you don't know the answer, it's coming. Do not fret. Do not worry. But I want you to hold yourself a little bit in that tension today. The answer's coming, but we're not quite there yet. Not in the text. It's there for you, but just hold it a little bit. Because I think what Paul, who wrote this letter to this church in Rome 2,000 years ago, what he was trying to do was he was trying to help them come face-to-face with a challenge. Help them come face-to-face with the difficulty they were experiencing, whether they realized it or not. But I think when we stop for a moment, we often do realize it right away. It's very clear, the situation we're in. And last week, we talked about this wrath of God that was being poured out on humanity. It was, this, it was a present wrath. It's a, it's a wrath uh, that is ongoing of God's response in His holiness and in His love to sin, disbelief, to rejection of Him. But today... We're going to be talking about the people who do believe. And there's a different kind of wrath that Paul warns about. It's not a present wrath, but it's a future wrath. And so as we get into this, you know, take note of what you hear as we read the Scripture together. And I would encourage you, pull out your Bible. If you don't have one, one of these is nearby, under a chair, near, you know, you can find. And we're going to be in Romans. And in this Bible, it's on page 1127. We're going to be looking at chapter 2 today, the whole chapter of Romans 2. So let's read together, and then let's see, God, what do you you want us to grab from this passage today? What what do you want to speak to our hearts about yourself, about ourselves, and what do you want us to do about it? What are we going to do with what we have here? I was so encouraged by your prayer, Allison, and I I do pray also that my heart would not grow callous to the gospel. And part of not growing callous to the gospel is not growing callous to my need for the gospel. And that's what we're going to look at today. So let's dive right in. Romans 2, verse 1. So again, in chapter 1, Paul's talking about those people, right? People who reject God, people who don't believe in God, people who worship idols, right? And now he turns it and he says, now you, you, and you. 
You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourselves. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, a mere mortal, a mere man or woman, boy or girl, when you pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Okay, so what is he talking about here? What is God, or what is Paul referring to when he says that you condemn others, but you do the same thing? Well, this is what we call self-righteousness. This is what we call um, um, hypocrisy. This is the idea that I've got it all together, but you have not. So it's very appropriate and fitting for me to judge you. Now, I have done this. And you have done this. You don't even have to raise your hand. I already know. We've all done this. And there are reasons that we do this, right? Because we want to feel good about ourselves, right? So we put others down to make ourselves feel better. We do this because we trick ourselves into believing that we're actually pretty good people. I remember, I've shared this so many times before, but I remember growing up, even as a young adult, thinking, I'm a I'm actually a pretty good person. Um, I could list all the things that I haven't done. Right? Some of the things I haven't done, you've done them. So I'm probably better than you, right? And then I got married. And then I realized I'm not that good of a person. <laughs> because when I came into this, what can be a, a, you know, when you live with someone, there's friction, Right? Amen? <laughs> right? Anyone out there married? <laughs> there's friction. There's challenges. And things that uh, you, you may have perceived yourself as being patient, and you realize you're not patient. You may have thought of yourself as gentle, and you realize I'm not always gentle. Right? And then it's like, oh, I'm not that great of a person. And then I had children. And I realized I'm really not that great of a person. My apologies to the three young ladies in the room who are my children. It's hard. It's hard to, to sacrifice yourself for other human beings to that degree, right? And you realize I, I'm not as gracious as I thought I was. And then, and then, you know, whether you're married or have kids or not, uh, if you spend a lot of time with other people, you know, like good time with people, they start to notice your double standards and your hypocrisies, right? So whether it's, um, you know, the words that fly out of your mouth at, you know, 5 o'clock traffic, or whether it's, uh, you know, the way that you allow yourself uh, some uh, grace in certain areas, but you don't allow others grace in the same areas, you know, or maybe it's just you have an attitude that, uh, you know, you've got it figured out, and if everyone could just be like you, the world would be fine. And I think some point in our lives, each of us come to realize, if everyone in the world were like me, we'd be in deep doo-doo. It would be bad business. I wouldn't like that. No one else would like it either. Paul is talking here about people who, uh, who are righteous in their own eyes. So when we say self-righteous, what we mean is someone who believes that by their own actions, they are good, holy, righteous people, that God loves them because they're good. Okay? And we're going to find out here in this, as we go beyond the first paragraph that Paul is addressing first the Jewish people. Um, but before we think, yeah, those Jews, don't do that. Think, think in your mind, religious people. Those religious people. Those people who look at the other folks in chapter 1 who exchange the glory of God for idols and images, and, you know, and we think, oh, those people. He's talking to us. He says, do you think you'll escape judgment? 
if you pass judgment on others. Because when you pass judgment on others, you condemn yourself. I love that list in, our, in uh, the catechism answer. You might think, huh, those people who are sexually immoral, commit adultery. You might think that. And then you read that list and you're like, oh, wait. It's more than just the outward thing. It's the inward thing, too. Uh, Jesus says, if you even look lustfully at another person, you've committed adultery in your heart. And, and we might say, oh, well, I guess I'm an adulterer, too. I guess I'm a lawbreaker, too. Uh, we read in the scripture that you, you, you condemn those who murder, but when you hate someone, it's like you've murdered them in your heart. You're like, ah, you know, the difference between me and a murderer is uh, just the slightest bit of either the accident of not having the ability or, or maybe a tiny bit of restraint. You know, so I'm, I'm a murderer too. I'm a lawbreaker too. And that's what Paul's getting at. In verse 5, he says, Because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Chapter 1, there's a righteousness that is being uh, um, revealed, current, present tense. Uh, there's a wrath that is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. But in chapter 2, he says, you're storing up wrath for the day of wrath, the day of judgment, the day when you and I will all be before our Creator and have to answer for our actions, for our thoughts, for our words, for everything that we've done. And he says, you're storing up a future wrath. And the wrath of chapter 1, as we talked about last week, this is that wrath that says that uh, in verse 4, uh, the riches of God and his kindness, his forbearance, and his patience, that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. That wrath of chapter 1 is actually a kindness where God is saying, let's get you to repentance as quickly as possible. Let's let you feel what it really is like to live without the Lord so that you'll come to the end of yourself, and there's still hope for redemption. But the future wrath, this future day of wrath of the Lord, is a day, it's not of, it's not of rehabilitation, right? It's, it's what we might call retributive justice. It's God saying, you've done wrong, and now here's your punishment. Once we die and go before the Lord, it's too late to repent then. This is a wrath that we also don't like to talk about, much like last week. There is an actual consequence for trusting in your own righteousness when you're not righteous enough. There's an actual consequence for that. It says, God, in verse 6, God will repay each person according to what they have done. Now, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But to those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. Now, we might read that and think, oh, well, then I'm going to try really hard to do good, because then I will not get this consequence that Paul's talking about. The problem is, uh, as we're going to see, he's going to spell it out even more in the next chapter, but even right here, it's for those who persist in doing good, meaning you always do good. Any takers on that one? Anyone want that? Challenge? And the thing is, you've got to remember, is you, you, ha- you can't start today. You had to start, I guess, the day you were born. You know, God's standard, it's just not, it's, and it's not because God's mean. God's standard is himself. God's standard for holiness is his holiness. God's standard for righteousness is his righteousness. And if you don't like it, just consider this for a moment. Philosophically, what other standard could there be? What, what can God look to outside of himself to set a standard for holiness? 
he's it. You know, it's like, like when you go to the Supreme Court and they try a case, there's no higher court they can appeal to. That's, it stops. That's the end. Except God's the one who also created those people on the Supreme Court. <laughs> there's no higher authority to go to. There's no other place to look for a standard. You know, so God's standard of goodness, God's standard of holiness, God's standard of righteousness, he is the standard. And none of us reach that standard. None of us. Except someone reached that standard, right? Who alone was perfect and persisting in good? I heard Jesus in the back. That's right. Jesus. Jesus. So Paul is not... There are interpreters who think, oh, Paul is quoting somebody here. He's quoting someone who says, oh, if you do good, then God will give you good, and if you do bad, God will give you bad. But he doesn't really mean it. No, I think Paul means it. He means it, but he knows, and he's about to talk about, he knows that none of us have met the standard. So he says, there's going to be distress for those who do evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. The problem is, all the Jews and Gentiles have done evil, and none of the Jews and Gentiles have only done good except for the one. Now, it's interesting, when you think about self-righteousness in the Scripture, this is the sin that Jesus absolutely condemns the most. When the woman's caught in adultery, what does Jesus do? Men are gathering around to stone her. And Jesus says, you who have no sin, cast the first stone. So he kind of condemns the crowd. And then what does he say to the woman? Where are your accusers? Where are those who condemn you? Neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. Right? Jesus is gentle with the, with the woman who is, you know, cowering in fear over her sin. And he's difficult or he's confrontational with the men who only see the sin of others and don't see their own. How is Jesus with uh, the a Samaritan woman who's had multiple husbands and, you know, has no... No hope with her current man she's living with to marry him. She's broken all the commandments, right? What is he like with her? Is he harsh with her? No, he's gentle. He says, hey, uh, would you like water that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again? Like, I know your past. I know all about your past. I don't care about that. I want to give you life. You know, how is Jesus with um, even non-Jewish people who come to him seeking his help. He says, well, I'm here for the Jews. Like there's this Syrophoenician woman. I'm here for the Jews. I'm not here for the Gentiles. She's like, yeah, yeah, but, you know, can I just have a morsel? And he says, would it be right? And Jesus, Jesus is really uh, interesting how he phrases this. There's a little jab in there. He's like, would it be right for me to give the food for the children to the dogs? And she says, don't even the dogs eat the crumbs from the meal of the children? And he commends her faith more highly than he does to any of the Jewish people that he encounters that we have a record of in the Scripture. He's very kind to her, and he gives her what she asked for. The heal- I think it's the healing of her daughter. How is Jesus with the religious leaders? Jesus likes, those are his guys, right? He loves those Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're like, his, they're like his bros. They're like his crew, right? No. No, he, he blasts them. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says their father is Satan. You don't get much harsher than that when you're talking to religious people. Jesus condemns the self-righteous more than anyone else. In the Sermon on the Mount... 
Section after section after section after section, he's condemning the self-righteous. And then if you, if you have a moment tonight, just read Matthew 23. Jesus reads these woes to the Pharisees. Woe to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Woe to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Seven times. Because they're all hypocrites. He says, you, you tithe on your dill. You tithe on your spice. But then you rob your parents whom you're supposed to honor. Like, what's wrong with you people? You've abandoned the spirit of the law and pretended to follow the letter of the law. He says they put a burden on people's shoulders but never help them carry it. Does that sound like anything religious people still do today? Absolutely. God doesn't like self-righteous people. There, I said it. God doesn't like self-righteous people. Why might that be? Who does Jesus say he came for? He says, I did not come for the righteous. He came for sinners. He came for the needy. He came for the sick, not for the righteous. What does Jesus mean when he says that? Does he mean that people who are good people have no hope because he doesn't care about them? No, of course not. What it means is this. If you are a healer, and you come and you say, I offer healing, who are the people who are going to receive the healing? The people who are sick. Why will the people who are healthy not receive the healing? Because they don't need it. But here's the problem. They only think they're healthy. What if they really were sick? What if they had a tumor and they didn't know it? What if their body was ridden with cancer and they had no clue? And so they passed up on the healing. Jesus came for the sinner. Why? Someone who offers forgiveness comes to people who want forgiveness. Why do the self-righteous not want forgiveness? They don't think they need it. Exactly right. They think they're good. So the irony of Scripture, the irony of Jesus is that the people who think they're the best people, the people who are the most religious, the people who in here know the law, but for us know, know the Scriptures, the people who, who actually have their lives most put together are the people that have the hardest time receiving the grace of Jesus Christ in the Gospel. This is kind of like why Jesus says it's easier for a rich man to enter, um, sorry, it's harder for a rich man to enter heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Because the rich people think they have everything they need, but they only think they have everything they need. Those who are righteous think they have everything they need. And here's a little catch for you. I'm just going to throw this out there. It's really no good to think that you used to need the grace of the gospel, but not anymore. That's the one that gets me. Oh, I know I needed to be saved. I know I needed the forgiveness of Jesus Christ when I came to him when I was a young boy or you know, a young teenager. I know, I know that I needed that back then. But now I have Jesus, so now I'm good, right? Now I can just try my hardest to do the right thing because I already got that forgiveness. But now, I mean, praise the Lord, now I'm a righteous person. I mean, look how different I am from where I was. Right? And it's true, you're different now, hopefully, from where you were. Hopefully something changed when you came to Jesus, when you put your faith in him. But it's no good to think of that only in the past tense. You know, Paul was someone who murdered Christians, right? Persecuted them, put them in prison. And you could look at Paul and you could say, man, that guy was bad news. Paul would agree with you. But Paul also says that he is, and he uses this word, he actually says, I am. So I'm going to get the first person here. He says, I am the chief of sinners. 
When is he referring to? Is he referring to when he was persecuting Christians and putting them to death? I think if he meant that, he would have said, I was the chief of sinners. But he says, I am the chief of sinners. So Paul recognizes that even in his redeemed state, he is hopelessly sinful before the Lord. Hopelessly. And I think the reason he says, I'm the chief of sinners, is two things. He wants other people to know, don't expect to be self-righteous after you've come a long way in your faith. That's the first thing. He's teaching others. But I think he's also reminding himself, don't begin to think that you're righteous. Because his message is that you cannot find righteousness in yourself. You can only find it in Jesus. Only. And that's where he gets to this thing, this little conversation about the law. Look in verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. He's talking about Gentiles here, people who don't have the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, the, the Ten Commandments. We, we, we read 6, 7, and 8 today. Uh, you know, People who don't have the law, they're going to perish, they're going to die apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. Okay, that's a really weird way of saying everyone, everyone has some sense of right and wrong. So whether, whether you know the law of God or you don't know the law of God, everyone has a sense of right and wrong. And whether you know the law or don't know the law, you're doing things that you think are wrong. You're doing things that you think are wrong. So we, I said earlier that you cannot live up to the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, but you can't even live up to the righteousness of your own self. You cannot meet your own standard for holiness. There is no one who has thought, okay, this is what holiness is, and then they met it. It doesn't happen. It's impossible. It says in verse 15, they show the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. He's saying, you've got in your side yourself this code of ethics that both justifies you and condemns you. When you match up with it, you feel justified. When you don't match up with it, you feel condemned. So everyone has a law. But he's saying the judgment is coming. That was a little aside. He says the judgment is coming. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. He says, now then, if you call yourself a Jew, if you rely on the law and boast in God, you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. And if you are convinced that you're a guide for the blind a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of little children, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So Paul's talking about, he's talking here to Jews who are under the Mosaic Covenant, under the law of God. And he says, you think you're special because you have the law. You think you're better than others because you've got this special relationship, this special covenant with God. And yet, you keep breaking it. You keep going against the things you say you believe in. Right? It's not those who hear the law, but it's those who obey the law that God honors. And he's saying, you've heard it, but you haven't obeyed it. And it doesn't mean that they've necessarily broken every single commandment. But the problem is, the law stands as a single entity. And if you break one part of it, you've broken all of it. 
you know, how many crimes do you have to break before you're a criminal? How many times do you need to be convicted of something before you're a convict? How many times do you need to break the law before you're a lawbreaker? Of course, the answer is one. We're all criminals. We're not all convicts. Not yet. Not in the earthly scheme. But in the day of God's judgment, we will be convicted of sin if we're relying on ourselves. If you're relying on your own ability to do good, to earn favor with God, then God will disabuse you of the notion that you're good enough. That's the bad news. That's the bad news. And so you might think, well, what's the benefit of the law in the first place if we all stand condemned? And the Bible talks about this question. The first thing that's good about the law is the law shows us whether or not we're law keepers or not. The law shows us whether we're righteous or not. Now think about this. If Jesus is coming for the sinners, and only the people who think they're sinners are going to be the ones to come and get his grace and forgiveness, then what's the best gift God can give us? Awareness that we are indeed sinners. So God doesn't give us the law. Uh, Paul says the law is good. We're going to get to that later in Romans. The law is good. But the law reveals to us our own brokenness, our own evil, our own sinfulness. And, you know, we live in a culture and a climate where um, we often talk about sin with other words. We, talk, we don't like to use that word, right? So, oh, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. Did the wrong thing. It was a mistake. And on some level, you say, okay, well, sure, it was a mistake. Um, but that doesn't really capture it. What are some other words that we use instead of just saying sin? Yeah, it was a bad choice. I made an error. I messed up. Flawed. So sue me, right? Sue me, I'm flawed. Yeah. And we try to avoid this reality that, no, I'm actually, I'm actually in a place of rebellion against the creator of the universe. And what the law does is it shows me that I'm in rebellion against God. And again, not just that I was, because the law still shows me as a believer that there's still in me rebellion against God. It has not gone away yet. The law shows me what righteousness really is, what holiness really is. And when I see what holiness really is, if I'm being honest with myself and with the law, then I think, oh my goodness, I am in trouble. I'm in trouble. Because it reveals to me that indeed... I'm not as good a person as I thought I was. I'm a sinner. Now, it's one thing to say I'm a sinner, right? And it's another thing to say, I'm a sinner because of this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin, this sin. In this circumstance, this circumstance, this circumstance, and this circumstance. The law helps you get really specific. Because until you get specific, it's easy to say, oh, yeah, of course I'm a sinner. We're all sinners. That's easy to say. It's really hard to say, and this is the sin that I did yesterday at 2.35. Right? The law makes it very specific. And what the law does also is it shows you, it reveals to you that any confidence that you put in good living any confidence that you put in being a good person, any confidence that you put in your motivations, any confidence that you put in your actions, for righteousness will always make you a hypocrite and self-righteous. Always. 
You cannot put any hope or confidence in the law for your righteousness without becoming a hypocrite and self-righteous because you will never live up to the standard, ever. But if your hope is in it, what do you have to do? You have to pretend. You have to pretend that you're good enough so that you can go to sleep at night, right? You have to, you have to convince yourself that, oh, well, you know, it's like a scale, you know? So as long as my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, I think I'm in good shape. The law says, no, that doesn't cut it, right? There's not room for that. It's, it's kind of like, well, you know, my intentions were good. The law says, no, no, not good enough. Not good enough. And then Paul takes this weird turn to us. It sounds like a weird turn. He's talking about the law. And then all of a sudden in verse 25, he says, circumcision has value. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. whiplash. Weren't we just talking about self-righteousness and like, uh, the law shows me this and that and the other, and now you're talking about circumcision. Like Circumcision has value if you observe the law. He's talking to Jews here again. Circumcision has value if you observe the law. And what he's saying is like, you have, you, there are folks out here in my audience right, who put so much value on something that happened to them without their will that they can't remember when it happened. It had nothing to do with their choice or actions. But it, to them, it makes them think, well, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. But he says, it only has value if you observe the law, but if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Now, what is he saying there? He's saying it's like you're not a Jew at all. Now, let me ask you, do any of you ever consciously or unconsciously, maybe put some confidence in something that happened to you before you remember it. There's nothing of your choice. And it didn't result in you being obedient to the Lord. I'll give you an example from my own life. I grew up, my dad's a pastor, right? I go to church every week. I read my Bible. I pray, right? Why do I do those things? At some point, I had to come to realize that I do those things because my parents do them and because they make me do them. There's no, there's nothing to boast about in that. When I was five years old, I got baptized. Why did I get baptized? Because I told my parents that I believed in Jesus and so that my dad baptized me. I'm not knocking that baptism. But if I'm putting my trust in that moment, and it hasn't resulted in me honoring the Lord with my life, being obedient to Christ. It's just a sign. It's just a symbol. And it's an empty symbol. If it doesn't lead me to loving the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, loving my neighbors as myself, and making disciples of all nations, <laughs> following Jesus and the things that he did, then it's an empty sign that has no power in my life anymore. There's nothing wrong with the sign. There's something wrong with me. You see? So he talks about this. He says, and, you know, it, I don't want to replace circumcision with baptism because he really is talking to his Jewish audience here. I don't want to overlook that. But it's almost like for us, if he were to say, oh, you've been baptized, but it has value only if you love Christ and serve Christ. But if you don't follow Christ, then it's like you've never been baptized at all. It's like you're not even a Christian. But he's saying this to the Jewish people. It's like you're not even a Jew. And if those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they were circumcised? He's like, you've got people here who are not even Jewish, who are living more Jewish lives than you are. What are we going to do with that? The one who is not circumcised physically and yet obeys the law, will condemn you, who even though you have the written code and circumcision, are a lawbreaker. He's saying there are people who, by their actions, they're following the Lord, even though they don't have the sign. Now, what could we equate this to in our life? Well, I gave one example, baptism. 
But what about other examples? What if, what if you're trusting in your knowledge of what the Bible says about salvation? What if you're trusting in your theology or your doctrine? You know, like, well, you know, we have the right doctrine of salvation, so we're in good shape. But what if someone who has a really lousy doctrine of salvation is trusting Jesus more than you are who have a great doctrine of salvation? What's God going to do with that one? Your thoughts are only a sign for your heart. But sometimes they're an empty sign. I can attest that there have been times in my life where I could think properly about the gospel, but my heart was not aligned with it, really at all. Can you relate to that? Which do you think God wants? Which do you think he wants? Personally, my hunch is, well, not my hunch, it's scripture. (laughs) Personally, I believe that God would rather have your heart with him than your mind on him. That God would rather have you in right relationship with him, in fact, than that you'd be able to talk about what a right relationship with him is like. Now, hear me out. It's way easier to have the heart in the right place when the mind is in the right place. It's not like instead of. But if you had to choose, take the heart. That's what Paul says. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. So, just like circumcision is only an outward sign, there are realities in our life that are only signs of being in God's covenant. They're only markers for it. You know, I I confess, there are times when I look at other people, other people who claim to be Christians, who have horrible theology, and I don't say something like, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like this poor, name your denomination. You know, but it's there. Like, it's there in my heart. Oh, man, they're so messed up. Their theology is whack. It's horrible. Like, do they, are they even reading the same Bible we're reading? But then sometimes you see someone with horrible theology, and then you see how much they love the Lord, and you think, oh, I'm missing something in this equation. And then I look at my theology, or my group, you know, people who have the right theology, they've got it all figured out. Sometimes I'm like, whoa, where did we go so wrong? Because this is not the love of Christ being displayed in my own heart or in the hearts of my group. God, what do you want to do with that? And here's the thing that God wants to do with that. He wants to remind you that if you put your hope in any of those things, it's a losing game. It's a losing game. Now, here's what could happen right now. We have options. You could go home, and you could be thinking, I'm probably not even saved. I'm going to hell. What am I going to do? Why did the pastor leave us like this? What are we supposed to do now? Like That's one option, right? And if you want to leave right now, go ahead and do that. You can go out, but I suggest you stay a little bit longer. Don't turn off the Zoom call yet. Right? That's one option. But the other option, because that's, that's, that's what hypocrisy and self-righteousness lead to, is that you have no hope for salvation. None. Because you finally realize, I'm not good enough. Okay? Or, this is going to be crazy. It's going to sound like nuts, right? Or, you could look at your total failure to live up to the standards of God and say, yep, that's me. I know it's crazy, right? But you know, the only way to not be a hypocrite, if you, if you, if you aren't perfect, is to acknowledge you're not perfect, right? 
So you can go into despondency and despair. You can acknowledge you're not perfect. There's one other option. You can be perfect. Okay? Anyone want to try for that one? Okay. The way I see it, option, option number two is the best one. All right? Does anyone remember Let's Make a Deal? The old game show? You know, behind one door is like a trip to Tahiti, and behind another door is a goat. Like, don't choose the goat. Take the great deal. The great deal is that all you really have to do, all you really have to do, is not trust in yourself at all and trust in the one who is righteous and holy and perfect. Right? Trust in Jesus. That's it. It's that simple. Because here's the deal. You already know, you already know more just from today. You already know more about where you stand before God than probably, you know, six billion people. I know that's a strong claim, right? You know more about your standing before God than billions of people just from what you heard this morning. And most of you know way more than what you heard this morning. Okay? Just like the Jewish people who had the law and had circumcision, they were going to be judged by the law. You will be judged by what you know. And so you have a responsibility. You have a responsibility to make a choice. You cannot, you cannot leave this room without making a choice and pretend that you never had the option. Okay? And so now you have this responsibility. And you have to pick, am I going to take the antidote? Because self-righteousness is a disease and it's a deadly one. It's terminal. And it's degenerative. It doesn't get better. It only gets worse unless you get the antidote. And so it's either perfection or it's humility. Perfection or humility. Or you can go home and be angry at me that I made you question your salvation. <laughs> but, hey, maybe... Maybe questioning will lead you to vulnerable humility. Because the way out of the trap is to say to the Lord, I need a healer. I need a savior. I need grace. I need forgiveness. And I do not have the means to get them on my own. That's what Jesus came for. You know, I was reading this week um, in a book by Andrew Murray, uh, the it's called the um, abiding in Christ, and he says this. And this is a note to you know anyone who's been a Christian for a while. I think you'll resonate with this. He says, after parting with unrighteousness, the believer must also give up self righteousness. Although we contend earnestly against our own words or merits, it is often a long time before we come to really understand what it is to refuse self any place or right in the service of God. Unconsciously, we allow the acts of our mind, heart, and will to freely reign in God's presence. It's a really helpful perspective to me. When I'm trusting in myself, what I'm saying is, Lord, I know you're the ruler of the universe, but I got this. Right? I got this. Don't worry about me. I got it. It's fine. I'm actually, you might find, Lord, that I'm actually really good at ruling things. Pretty impressive if you stop to think about it, Jesus. And sometimes it takes us a while to realize it's not true at all. I'm not impressive. You're not impressive. Jesus doesn't find you the least bit intimidating in your ability to do what he's already done perfectly. Right? So, as a Christian, we get saved we start to put away the old things. And we think, oh, I'm pretty good now. I got this. And what Murray reminds us, what Paul's reminding us of is this. Now, you put away those things. Now put away yourself. And this is the part of the gospel that's way less comfortable. But it's so incredibly critical. Don't just put away the things. Put away yourself. And then God will truly reign in your life. And you'll truly experience for the first time what real righteousness is because it is only the righteousness of Christ through you 
that will ever begin to look in any way like the righteousness God requires. And it's that vulnerable humility that takes you there. Is everyone discouraged or is anyone excited? You can, you've, get, I've been given, you've been given the antidote. Now you've got to take it. Take two every morning and two more every night. Okay? Come back in a week and we'll see how you're doing. Amen? Well, Lord, thank you that, that your word hits hard, but it hits true. And God, this feels a little bit like an arrow to the heart, but it's an arrow that brings healing because what was around our heart was cold, it was stone, it was hard, uh, and this arrow can break down those walls around our heart so that we can have those circumcised hearts. We can have those hearts that are tender and yielded to you. We can have hearts that are attuned to your will and attuned to your love and attuned to your grace. God, we can have hearts that uh, enable us to say, you know what, I don't need to put on any pretense or any uh, 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 false righteousness. I can simply be my sinful self in your presence, in the presence of my brothers and sisters, because none of us here are relying on that. We're all relying on the righteousness of Christ. Lord, I do pray that um, any, anyone here who needs to affirm or reaffirm that they are sinners in need of a Savior, that they're the sick in need of a healer, that they're the self-righteous who are in need of this real righteousness that comes through vulnerable humility. Lord, I pray that they would acknowledge that before you today. And Lord, that they would share it with somebody. Uh, and that they could be encouraged today not to walk home or drive home uh, questioning, oh, how, uh, am I ever going to be good enough? But to acknowledge they never will, but you are. God, we never will be enough, but Jesus is. Lord, thank you for his love. Thank you for his grace. and Thank you for his work on the cross on our behalf. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.